Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. At some point in the last 12 months, over 50% of the U.S. adult population experienced something that made their stomachs turn. What am I talking about? Nausea and vomiting, of course. A plethora of antiemetic agents are available to treat these symptoms, but guidance on selecting an individualized antiemetic plan for our patients is unclear. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Marissa Powell, an oncology clinical pharmacist who will walk us through clinical considerations and recommendations on how to select appropriate medications to treat nausea and vomiting. Our learning objectives are to review the pathophysiology of nausea and vomiting, describe antiemetic therapeutic options and considerations for their use, and discuss concerns for QT prolongation with antiemetic medications. We'll start with pathophysiology. It's important to understand factors that can lead to development of nausea and vomiting so that in addition to providing antiemetic support, we're also optimizing management of the underlying causes of nausea and vomiting. And these causes can be many things, um, chemotherapy and radiation, post-operative, mostly due to opioid use, post-surgery, and post-anesthesia effects. A variety of drugs and toxins can cause nausea and vomiting. Different infections like gastroenteritis, endocrine and metabolic causes like pregnancy, uremia, and hormone and electrolyte imbalances, GI and peritoneal causes such as gastroparesis, obstruction, and inflammatory bowel disorders, CNS causes such as migraine, increased intracranial pressure, and seizures, and finally, psychiatric illness such as anxiety, depression, and pain. Our standard definitions are derived from oncology guidelines, but can really be broadly applied to any cause of nausea and vomiting. So acute is within 24 hours of chemotherapy or surgery or whatever the inciting stimulus may be. And this generally peaks at around five to six hours. Delayed occurs at 24 hours to several days. And usually our time frame is around day two to five where we're worried about delayed nausea vomiting. And chronic is patients with four or more weeks of symptoms. Breakthrough refers to nausea and vomiting that occurs despite appropriate prophylactic treatment. Anticipatory occurs before a treatment or procedure and involves feelings of anxiety or nervousness about having nausea or vomiting. And refractory recurs in subsequent cycles of therapy and is due to failure of our typical antiemetic regimens. So our first audience question, um, if everybody can pull open their poll everywhere on their phone or their tablet is which of the following is not a neurotransmitter associated with nausea and vomiting? A, dopamine, B, serotonin, C, norepinephrine, or D, acetylcholine? Okay, so I'm seeing a lot of answers for norepinephrine, which is our correct answer. The other three neurotransmitters listed here can all cause nausea and vomiting, and we'll review those in more detail. So nausea is caused by stimulation of one or more of four sites. The gastrointestinal tract, chemoreceptor trigger zone, vestibular system, and central nervous system. And these four sites are also responsible for vomiting. 
The first of the four sites is the gastrointestinal tract, where stimulation of mechanoreceptors located on vagal or glossopharyngeal afferents in the GI tract results in activation of the vomiting center in the brain. These mechanoreceptors can be stimulated by a variety of inputs, such as constipation, local irritation of the pharynx, esophagus, or stomach through infection, inflammation, gastroesophageal reflux, radiation therapy, or alcohol use, Delayed gastric emptying or ileus in the setting of medication use, tumors, inflammation, or ascites. Stretching of the serosa from liver metastases or gastric or bowel obstruction. And finally, cardiac ischemia, as there are similar mechanoreceptors located on cardiac tissue that can also stimulate the vomiting center. Cytotoxic chemotherapy and radiation can also stimulate emesis by causing release of serotonin from enterochromaffin cells in the gut resulting in stimulation of serotonin receptors on vagal afferents and activation of the vomiting center. Cancer guidelines such as NCCN, ASCO, and the ESMO mask guidelines categorize chemo by the frequency of emesis that would be expected in patients that are not receiving any antiemetics. Various cutoffs for both IV and oral chemotherapy are shown here. The chemoreceptor trigger zone is located in the brain adjacent to the vomiting center. It is thought to have an absent or ineffective blood-brain barrier, thus exposing it to blood-borne toxins that can stimulate it. These toxins can be endogenous, which are increased in the setting of neoplasms, renal or hepatic failure, hypercalcemia, hyponatremia, sepsis, or hormone imbalances. Or they can be exogenous toxins, such as opioids, cytotoxic chemotherapy, and certain types of bacteria. The chemoreceptor trigger zone itself possesses multiple receptors, including dopamine, serotonin, chemoreceptors, and neurokinin-1 receptors. Our third site is the vestibular system, where motion or vertigo will cause release of histamine and acetylcholine, which bind to histamine and muscarinic receptors on vestibular afferents and can activate the vomiting center. Our fourth and final site is the CNS, where higher centers, such as the cork Cortex, thalamus, and hypothalamus can cause stimulation through increased intracranial pressure, meningeal irritation in cancer or infection, anxiety, emotional stress, anticipation of a metagenic chemotherapy, migraine, pain, and pain, visual stimuli or unpleasant tastes. So the vomiting center processes afferent inputs from all four of these areas as either stimulatory or inhibitory signals. Looking a little bit more closely at the vomiting center itself, it has multiple different receptors, including histamine, muscarinic, neurokinin-1, and serotonin. Stimulation of the vomiting center activates parasympathetic and motor efferent activity that ultimately produces vomiting. So now that we've gone through a little bit of background on pathophysiology, we'll transition to talking about antiemetic therapeutic options. We have 10 different classes of antiemetics. We'll go through each of these and highlight some important evidence for a few select agents. So our first class is the serotonin antagonists. These work through blocking serotonin peripherally in the gastrointestinal tract, as well as centrally in the vomiting center and the chemoreceptor trigger zone. Medications include adansetron, palinocitron, granizetron, and dilacetron. Some common adverse effects are constipation, headache, and hiccups. Some clinical considerations are that we should reduce the dose or avoid use in patients with severe hepatic impairment, 
and that ondansetron has a wide range of bioavailability from 50 to 85 percent, which we should keep in mind when converting patients between IV and oral formulations. Some pros of the serotonin antagonists are that they come in a variety of different formulations, tablets, orally disintegrating tablets, oral soluble films and solutions, IM, IV, and subcutaneous injections, and transdermal patches. They also have a pretty quick onset of around 30 minutes, and they have a time to max effect about two hours. Some cons are that they do have the potential to cause QT prolongation, which we'll discuss a little bit further later on in the presentation. So ultimately, the role in therapy for these agents is that they're an appropriate option to consider in all patients with nausea and vomiting. Palinocitron is a serotonin antagonist that's been gaining a lot of popularity since it became generic as of March 2018. It is still a little bit more expensive than ondansetron, but it does have several characteristics that might make it worth the increased cost in certain situations. It has a 100-fold higher binding affinity for the serotonin receptor compared to our other alternatives. It's also proposed that it might inhibit serotonin and neurokinin-1 crosstalk, offering an additional mechanism of action that our other agents do not have. Its main claim to fame is its half-life of 40 hours, which is much longer than with our other agents. And it also may not cause QT prolongation, which again will be discussed further. Of note, single agent palinocitron is only available IV in the United States. This figure shows a compilation of four different phase three randomized control trials that are assessing the efficacy of palinocitron in acute chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, so in that time period of zero to 24 hours after receiving chemo. All study participants received either moderately or highly emetogenic chemotherapy. In palinocitron, 0.25 milligrams, which is the dose that is commonly used, is compared to palinocitron 0.75 milligrams and our other three serotonin antagonists that are commonly used, ondansetron, granizetron, and dilacetron. Complete response is displayed on the y-axis, which is defined as no emesis and no use of rescue antiemetic medications. In each of the four studies, we see palinocetron at both doses performing slightly better than other serotonin antagonists. In particular, the last study shows a statistically significant improvement in complete response with palinocitron 0.25 milligrams as compared to ondansetron. All studies also noted a similar side effect profile for all four of these different agents. For evidence outside of our oncology population, we have a forest plot that's derived from a meta-analysis comparing ondansetron versus palinocitron for delayed post-operative nausea and vomiting, so in the period from 24 to 120 hours after surgery. Unsurprisingly, we see that comparing single doses in this delayed setting, the majority of studies favor palinocitron, which is likely due to its longer half-life and duration of action. So the role in therapy for this particular agent is in patients with nausea that's predicted to last for multiple days. Our next class is the phenothiazines. These medications are anticholinergic and dopamine antagonists. Medications include prochlorperazine, promethazine, and chlorpromazine. Some side effects can be constipation, extrapyramidal side effects, tardive dyskinesias, and CMS depression. Some clinical considerations are that these are antipsychotics and they may lower the seizures threshold. Promethazine also has antihistamine properties, so it may be thought that it would be a better antiemetic, but in clinical practice, we actually don't see it being as effective in antiemesis. And really, the primary agent that we use within this class is prochlorperazine. 
Some pros is that the duration and mechanism of these agents make them a good as-needed medication. And cons are that they are on the beers list and that they do have the potential to cause QT prolongation. So ultimately, their role in therapy is primarily in breakthrough nausea, and they also have some efficacy in patients with vertigo. The butyrophenones are dopamine antagonists in the chemoreceptor trigger zone and the central nervous system. Medications are haloperidol and droperidol. Some adverse effects we can see include sedation, movement disturbance, and orthostatic hypotension. We need to use lower doses for antiemesis than we would for antipsychotic effect, and both drugs have similar antiemetic efficacy, though haloperidol is used far more frequently than droperidol for this use. In the rare cases that we would use droperidol, note that it is twice as potent as haloperidol is for this indication. And we need to be mindful of drug interactions as these medications are major substrates of CYP3A4 and 2D6. Some pros are that these do have a quick onset of around 15 to 30 minutes, and cons are that they can cause QT prolongation, but this is unlikely to occur because, as I mentioned, we're using lower doses for antiemesis than we would be for agitation or antipsychotic effects. Their role in therapy is as rescue medications in breakthrough nausea and vomiting or in anxiety-induced nausea vomiting. Olanzapine is another drug that's gaining a lot of popularity recently. It has multiple different mechanisms. It's an antagonist of dopamine, histamine, alpha-1 adrenergic, serotonin, and muscarinic receptors. So it acts at all four of our different sites, as well as within the vomiting center itself. The most common adverse effect that we see is sedation. Um, and at low doses, we can also see anticholinergic effects and postural hypotension. When using these agents for longer use, uh, we can also see extrapyramidal symptoms and hyperglycemia develop. The half-life increases up to 1.5 times in geriatric patients, so it's reasonable to consider an initial starting dose of 5 milligrams or even 2.5 milligrams in our older patients compared to the typical 10 milligram doses that we can use in younger patients. Clearance is about 30% lower in females, which wouldn't necessarily warrant uh, an upfront dose reduction, but it is something to be mindful of if we're seeing increased toxicity in female patients. Olanzapine can also stimulate appetite, which in many patients with antiemesis, particularly in our oncology population, this is often a beneficial side effect. And it is likely that we do not see QT prolongation. Studies have shown that it does not prolong the QT, although it is listed in package labeling. Pros are that it's generally well tolerated as an antiemetic, and that comparable efficacy may be seen at the 5 milligram versus 10 milligram doses and we see less sedation with the lower five milligram dose. Olanzapine has an emerging role in many nausea vomiting settings, both within oncology and outside of the oncology realm in places like post-operative nausea and vomiting. Cons are that the optimal dosing is not clearly defined. That's where a lot of study is focused right now, where what is the best dose that we can use to maximize antiemetic effect but minimize sedation. So role in therapy, it's uh, recommended by oncology guidelines as part of a three or four drug regimen. It can also be used for breakthrough, anxiety-induced, opioid-induced, or post-operative nausea and vomiting. Looking a little bit more closely at the, after the evidence in olanzapine for post-operative nausea and vomiting, we have a study that was published in 2020 that was a single-center, double-blind, randomized control trial of adult female patients less than 50 years old undergoing ambulatory gynecologic or plastic surgery with general anesthesia. 
Their primary outcome was nausea or vomiting in the 24 hours after discharge. All patients were given dexamethasone and ondansetron during surgery, and then were randomized to receive either olanzapine 10 milligrams or placebo one hour before surgery. For their primary outcome, we saw that nausea and vomiting in the 24 hours after discharge was 14% in the olanzapine group versus 38% in the placebo group. Both severe nausea and vomiting were also lower in the olanzapine group. Sedation, which is our primary side effect of concern with this agent, was measured on a 0 to 10 scale with 0 being no sedation and was higher in the olanzapine group with a median of 6 compared to 4 with placebo. So overall, we see better efficacy with olanzapine with a trade-off of causing more sedation. Our next class of medications is the antihistamines, which work through blockade of histamine receptors. The medications that we use for antiemesis are diphenhydramine, hydroxazine, cyclozine, meclozine, and dimenhydrinate. Some adverse effects can be sedation, confusion, dizziness, blurred vision, and xerostomia. These agents are more effective in prevention than treatment of nausea and vomiting, and they're often used to offset the EPS that's seen with antidopaminergic antiemetics like prochlorperazine or metoclopramide. We favor using first-generation antihistamines because in addition to blocking histamine, they also block muscarinic receptors, and they are able to pass the blood-brain barrier. Second-generation antihistamines are histamine-selective and cannot cross the blood-brain barrier. So some pros are that these are generally well-tolerated, and cons are that they are on the beers list, and they need to be taken 30 to 60 minutes prior to motion if using them for motion sickness. So their role in therapy is within motion sickness, and it can also help reduce secretions and aid sleep. Scopolamine is a non-selective blocker of both central and peripheral muscarinic receptors. Adverse effects may be tachycardia, sedation, confusion, dizziness, blurred vision, urinary retention, and xerostomia. Some clinical considerations are that the patch needs to be removed prior to MRI because some may contain metal, which could burn patient's skin and that patients can experience withdrawal if they're taking large doses or using scopolamine for a long time, and this may manifest as dizziness, headache, nausea, or vomiting. Pros are that this comes as a transdermal three-day patch, which many patients find to be convenient dosing. Cons are that it is on the beers list, and it has an onset of action of four hours, peaking at around 24 hours. So similar to our antihistamines, it's a better agent in prevention than treatment of nausea and vomiting. Roland therapy is primarily in motion sickness, and it can also help with reducing secretions. Corticosteroid mechanism for antiemesis is not fully understood, but there are many proposed mechanisms. They may decrease synthesis of prostaglandins, raise the emetic threshold, inhibit cortical input to the vomiting center, or act as anti-inflammatories in the intestinal epithelium. The most commonly used medication in this class for antiemesis is dexamethasone, though methylprednisolone is favored in Europe, but really any steroid would work for this indication. Adverse effects include insomnia, excitation, and changes in mood. We do need to be cautious with chemotherapy regimens that already contain a steroid. So for instance, many chemotherapy regimens can contain dexamethasone or prednisone. And in those cases, we don't need to add on an additional corticosteroid specifically for antiemesis. Pros are that they do have a strong role in delayed emesis, and they are very effective in combination therapy. They can increase the efficacy of other CINV regimens by up to 10 to 15%. Some cons are that we do tend to limit their use to short-term only. 
um, to avoid long-term side effects of steroid use. They have a four to five hour onset, and there's not much evidence outside of the hematology, oncology, and post-operative settings for using them for nausea and vomiting due to other causes. So their role in therapy is in combination therapy, post-operative, and in delayed nausea and vomiting. Our neurokinin-1 receptor antagonists block the binding of substance P at the neurokinin-1 receptor in the vomiting center and the chemoreceptor trigger zone. Medications are aprepotent, fosaprepotent, relapotent, natupotent, and fosnatupotent. And adverse effects may be headache, dizziness, and potential hypersensitivity reactions with the IV formulations. These drugs do have long half-lives, and they also have drug interactions due to their inhibition of CYP3A4. So in particular, when using them with regimens that contain dexamethasone, the dose will need to be adjusted. Pros are that they do have those long half-lives, and they do have a unique mechanism that allows them to be used as part of combination therapy regimens. Cons are that they are expensive, and they are limited to chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, at least for the time being. There are some studies looking at their use in post-operative nausea and vomiting, but the evidence is not robust enough uh, to support widespread use. There are many ongoing trials looking at these agents in the post-operative setting, so that practice may change in the future. Their role is in delayed chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting for the time being. Metoclopramide blocks dopamine and serotonin receptors, and it can also stimulate gut motility through enhancing the response to acetylcholine in the upper GI tract. Adverse effects may be tardive dyskinesia, for which it has a boxed warning, EPS, CNS depression, restlessness, and hypertension. We do need to adjust the dose for creatinine clearances less than 60, and we need to limit use to less than 12 weeks due to the risk for tardive dyskinesias. Some pros are that this agent is unique in that it aids with gut motility, and cons are that it can cause QT prolongation. So Roland therapy is primarily in gastroparesis, stimulation of appetite, or refractory nausea and vomiting. The cannabinoids mechanism is also not fully understood, but some of their potential mechanisms are that the THC component can be a CB1 receptor agonist, meaning that it would inhibit the release of presynaptic excitatory neurotransmitters that would otherwise stimulate emesis. The CBD component is a serotonin receptor modulator, and cannabinoids may also modulate the release of substance P, which binds at the neurokinin-1 receptor. FDA-approved medications in this class are nabilone and dronabinol, which are both oral synthetic THC derivatives. Adverse effects may be vertigo, hypotension, tachycardia, dysphoria, sedation, dry mouth, and visual hallucinations. We need to keep in mind that the, these FDA-approved formulations are not the same as all cannabis. So when interpreting efficacy and safety results from studies, we can't apply everything that's read about other cannabis formulations to these agents and vice versa. Some pros are that they do have a unique mechanism, and cons are that for the time being, there's not a lot of strong evidence for their use. Their role in therapy is primarily in refractory nausea and vomiting, and they can also act as appetite stimulants. Our last class is the benzodiazepines. These work through enhancement of GABA activity, sedation, and possible suppression of the vomiting center. Our most commonly used medication in this class is lorazepam, but really any benzodiazepine is thought to have the same mechanism. Adverse effects can be sedation, respiratory depression, and confusion. We do need to be cautious when using these medications in combination with other CNS depressants. 
Some pros are that they are very effective. There are multiple studies showing very positive outcomes on patient reported satisfaction and quality of life when using benzos. Some cons are their side effects and safety concerns, and also that they're a controlled substance that we need to be careful about overprescribing. Their role in therapy is in anxiety or anticipatory nausea and vomiting. I have here a summary table of all of the different medications that we discussed, along with the receptors that they bind to and their presumed QT prolonging effects for your reference. So we'll finish this section with another poll everywhere question, if you can get your phones or tablets out again. We have a 78-year-old female who is scheduled to receive an elective knee surgery next week. She was told that the anesthesia may cause some nausea post-surgery, and she's very worried about being nauseous and is asking for a medication to take before the surgery. What do you recommend? Our choices are A, scopolamine patch, B, olanzapine, C, a prepotent, D, metoclopramide, or E, dronabinol. Okay, so it looks like olanzapine has the most votes, and that is the correct answer. Our other four agents do not have any indications to be used in anticipatory or anxiety-induced nausea and vomiting. Since this patient is older, I would probably recommend a starting dose of around 2.5 to 5 milligrams. Um, and another appropriate option, if it had been listed, would be to potentially use a benzodiazepine like lorazepam in this patient. So we'll now move on to our third and final objective, which is discussing Q QT prolongation with antiemetic agents. And we have another question. This is our last one, so if you can get your phones back out. This is a 65-year-old female patient with no cardiac past medical history who's presenting with nausea and vomiting. The patient's QTC from yesterday is 495 milliseconds. Ondansetron 8 milligrams IV has been ordered. The use of ondansetron is contraindicated in this patient. True or false? Okay, so this one doesn't have a clearly defined right or wrong answer. I would argue that the answer is false here, and I'll present some information on why I feel that way in the upcoming slides. So we get this question all the time. Can I give ondansetron to my patient with a QTC of 495, or really any elevation above 490 or 500 where we start to get nervous? And this question is really just a small piece of the pie. We need to be asking more questions to get the full picture to be able to answer the question. So are they in normal sinus rhythm? Meaning can we trust that QTC that EPIC is calculating or does it need to be manually calculated or an EKG repeated? We also need to look at what other risk factors for torsades does the patient have? So females are at higher risk, electrolyte abnormalities. A general rule of thumb is to keep the magnesium above two and the potassium above four. Does the patient have a cardiac history? Things like congenital long QT syndrome or congestive heart failure. And is the patient bradycardic as torsades begins as a bradyarrhythmia? Are they on any other QT prolonging medications? And could we potentially hold or stop these medications while we're using ondansetron? What dose route um, do you want to give? Generally higher doses and IV routes are gonna be associated with higher risk of QT prolongation. And what's the frequency? It's really always appropriate if you're uncomfortable to verify it as a one-time order so that at each dosing interval, we can be reassessing the patient and reviewing the risks versus benefits of giving another dose. What's the plan for QT monitoring? Particularly in our patients who we do decide to schedule a medication, are we gonna be continually watching it and making sure that they are still within safe levels? And finally, are there any other options? 
Um, there are some antiemetics that do not prolong the QT interval, so could we potentially consider using one of those? There are, however, many antiemetics that do prolong the QT. So these are all of them that potentially can. They're the antihistamines, the phenothiazines, butyrophenones, benzamides, and the serotonin antagonists. I'm going to talk a little bit more in depth about Andanzatron. This is our most commonly used antiemetics, and there are case reports that exist of torsades occurring. In 2012, the FDA issued a statement recommending against the use of an IV ondansetron in doses greater than or equal to 32 milligrams. As a result of this, our max dose that we use IV is 16 milligrams. And most of those cases of torsades that are reported were with doses of 32 milligrams or higher. Since practice has changed, we have seen a rapid decline in the incidence of torsades. I'll provide a brief overview of two different studies that I think will really summarize the risks that are associated with ondansetron use regarding arrhythmias. So the first is a systematic review and post-marketing analysis of cardiac arrhythmias in patients receiving ondansetron. They found that there were no reports of arrhythmia associated with a single oral ondansetron dose. They did identify 60 reports of cardiac arrhythmias that occurred within 24 hours of a patient receiving ondansetron. 80% of those ondansetron doses were IV, and 67% of them were in patients who were on concomitant QT prolonging medications. However, 100% of them were assigned by study reviewers to have a low probability non-host score, meaning that it was unlikely that the ondansetron was what caused the patient to have a cardiac arrhythmia. So really the key takeaways from this study are that we should be using oral if possible, we should try to discontinue other QT prolonging medications when we're able to, and overall the rates of torsades associated with ondansetron use are low. Our next study looked at IV ondansetron after laparoscopic cholecystectomy. They gave patients ondansetron IV 4 milligrams or 8 milligrams. The figure shows the QTCF, which is just the QT interval corrected for heart rate. The x-axis shows time and minutes with B or baseline being the time that the patient got on Danzatron. And they found that the QT interval was significantly higher in the 8 milligram group during the first 5 minutes compared to the 4 milligram group, though it was likely not high enough to be clinically significant. We also see that around the 6 to 7 minute mark, the QT begins normalizing um, and going back down. And so our key takeaways from this one are that we should be using the lowest effective dose and that an increase in QT is seen shortly after IV push is given. The authors of this study also noted that it's possible that if you give ondansetron IV more slowly, like over 15 minutes rather than as an IV push, you may not see this effect occur. I also want to discuss QT prolongation with ondansetron. So this data is from a phase one double-blind placebo-controlled parallel group study. Their primary endpoint was placebo time-matched and baseline subtracted individual QTC interval prolongation. Subjects were randomized to receive palinocitron at 0.25, 0.75, or 2.25 milligrams. They used moxifloxacin as a positive assay control as it is known to prolong the QT interval. And placebo was used to be able to calculate changes in QT. So the figure shows the upper boundary of the placebo time-matched and baseline-subtracted individual QTC interval prolongation. 
The authors use, utilized a cutoff of 10 milliseconds for significant QT prolongation. Our positive control moxifloxacin, denoted by the purple line, does cross that threshold, which is what we would expect, but palinocitron at each of our three doses remains below the line. So conclusions from this study are that palinocitron, even at supertherapeutic doses, has no significant effect on cardiac repolarization as measured by the QTC interval. Our common dose of palinocitron is 0.25 milligrams, and so if it's not happening at the 2.25 milligrams, um, this is really um, exciting that it may not cause QT prolongation, even at those really high doses. So our takeaways from QTC prolongation with the antiemetics is that QTC prolongation risks do exist with most of our main antiemetic classes, but individual patient risk must be carefully assessed. The incidence of torsades following administration of QT prolonging antiemetics is rare overall across all of our different antiemetic medications. Particularly with ondansetron, QT prolongation risk is generally with doses higher than our maximum of 16 milligrams that we would use IV. We also have some options for medications that have not shown to prolong the QT, and those are our corticosteroids, our neurokinin-1 receptor antagonists, scopolamine, cannabinoids, benzodiazepines, select antihistamines of dimenhydrinate and meclizine, and then olanzapine and palinocitron. So in summary for this presentation, nausea and vomiting are complex processes with numerous different potential causes. We need to critically evaluate the cause of nausea in each patient to guide our antiemetic selection. In patients who require multiple antiemetics, select agents that have different mechanistic targets and evaluate the risk of QTC interval prolongation in each patient and with each medication. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.